I'm very fortunate in that I have a partner whose job pays him well enough that we are able to subsist on his income. Coming up on Carolina Connection, UNC graduate students advocate for a livable wage. Good morning, I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Will Christensen. Also this morning, after a sudden change in leadership, the Keenan Flagler Business School looks to the future with uncertainty. UNC's graduate schools will no longer require the GRE test for admissions, the Biden administration will forgive a portion of student loan debt for many borrowers, and the Good Neighbor Initiative holds a cookout to educate students about the communities they live in. You know, we have many students who might move into the neighborhood and not even realize that they live in a neighborhood, not just a place where students live. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. Leaders from the Graduate and Professional Student Government addressed the UNC Board of Trustees this week. They're requesting support to raise graduate student stipends. Some trustees want more information about what graduate students are making at similar institutions. Reporter Jay Neville has more on what UNC graduate students are asking for. Kendall Winter is a fifth-year PhD candidate in the Musicology program. She's also a graduate teaching assistant and receives a monthly stipend for her work. UNC's minimum stipend of $17,000 per year is $8,000 less than the average cost of living in Orange County. And students like Kendall have felt the stress. I'm very fortunate in that I have a partner whose job pays him well enough that we are able to subsist on his income. So for that first year, we were living on my stipend. And it was every month a little bit less in the savings account. UNC ranks 15 out of 15 among its peer institutions in minimum stipend rates. Winter says that the pay in her department is not competitive with schools across the country. However, she is grateful for the support she receives from her department's faculty. Along with Winter, graduate and professional student government president Theodore Nolert has helped to lead the charge for increasing stipend pay rates. Something that I always try to remind people is that what you spend on is what you value from a, from a material and a financial standpoint. There are other kinds of value, spiritual value, aesthetic value, whatever, but I can't buy groceries with those. Noller is aware that the pay rate is largely determined by what the UNC System Board of Governors allots in their budget. He plans to work directly with UNC to make a positive change, including requesting data from the UNC Board of Trustees that will specify the cost of increasing minimum stipend rates from $17,000 to $25,000. We have great partners in the administration who are working to get out a new budget that we can look at and make some suggestions about how to move items around so that that value that I believe that they hold for grad students is reflected in the budget. Evelyn Huber is a director of graduate studies for the political science department, and she's seen firsthand how the non-competitive stipend pay has discouraged students from choosing UNC. So we had this absolutely outstanding student our normal stipend is $17,000. This person got an offer of 20. Look at her other offers. Northwestern, 35. University of Pennsylvania, 38. Cornell, 34. Huber says that this particular student chose to attend another university, a trend that's become more common as the stipend rates remain flat. Faculty and students alike hope to see a change soon so that they can continue to recruit highly skilled candidates to the university. Kendall Winter, the musicology student, wants to see more effort at the state level to bring this change into effect. Where we stop feeling support is when we get beyond the campus to the system at the state level, where those major 
budgeting and uh, financial operations decisions are actually made. We, we need allies at, in the fight at the state and system level. The graduate and professional student government and other campus advocates continue to fight for increased awareness and support for graduate students who are relying on these stipends to provide for their basic needs. They remain patient and hope that the UNC system will be more willing to collaborate with the students these budgets impact the most. Carolina Connection reached out to the UNC system and has yet to receive comment. From Chapel Hill, I'm Jalen Neville. The Keenan Flagler School of Business held its groundbreaking ceremony for a new building on Thursday during a time of uncertainty. The ceremony comes as Dean Doug Shackelford's abrupt retirement poses new questions for the future of Keenan Flagler. Gerard Millman has the story. Doug Shackelford served as the dean of the Keenan Flagler School of Business since 2014. He announced his abrupt retirement in a campus message September 16th. In brief, I'm very tired. I'm not physically ill, and I'm sure I'll be fine with some rest, but I need to hand the baton to another who can run at the pace that this school deserves. I think the timing was surprising. Um, you know, it's not that, uh, that we saw that coming. And, you know, I, I think the challenge as a senior leader like, uh, like he has been is there's never a good time um, to really make a transition, right, to get off the train. Brad Statz is the Senior Associate Dean for Strategy and Academics. He worked closely with Shackelford for many years. Yeah, you know, I think the other thing that I really appreciated with him on, you know, on some hard decisions, and this was certainly true, um, was that, that often his answer would be, well, just do right by students. And so as we were looking at a trade-off, that would be the tiebreaker, um, trying to make sure that, uh, that we're really creating, you know, the, the opportunities for students that, uh, you know, that we aspire to. Not everyone feels that Shackelford's leadership had the students' best interest in mind. Former UNC graduate student and current faculty member Chijioge Wogu wrote an article on his website that outlined his experience as an MBA student. So I use examples from my time there, right, as a student, as staff, and now faculty to kind of show those things where it's obvious that we, we care more about money, less about students, and that's not right. Wogu says Dean Shackelford cut funding for several programs, including the Entrepreneurship Center and the Center for Sports Business. Wogu says the school would not support things that didn't generate revenue. He also says Keenan Flagler leadership created what he called a toxic culture. So it's, uh, I've heard lots of women talk about how they felt uncomfortable in class sometimes when things have crossed the line, have reached into this like very corporate machismo culture, right? People sometimes, if I'm in a class, I'm the only black student that I'm asked to talk about and, and, and give the, the, the viewpoint of all black people, right? Because I'm black, right? No, that's, that's, not, that's not my job, right? The school currently faces a racial discrimination lawsuit from a former graduate student. Wogu concludes his article with a call to action. Let's make sure the next dean of UNC Keenan Flagler Business School is truly focused on the mission to build and inspire leaders who make the world a better place. Even though Shackelford is gone, UNC officials thanked him at the groundbreaking ceremony for the business school's new Stephen D. Bell Hall on Thursday. Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz told an audience of alumni, faculty, students, and donors what the building means for the future of Keenan Flagler. In our charter, we are called to, and I'll quote, consult the happiness of the rising generation. The rising generation has always been central to our mission and our purpose at Carolina. Now, this building will enable us to teach and train more students and leaders for the future. This space will strengthen our culture of collaboration and help build our community. With Shackelford in the past and the new building in the future, the groundbreaking ceremony marks the next chapter for the Keenan Flagler School of Business. In Chapel Hill, I'm Gerard Millman.
When aspiring students apply to UNC's graduate programs in the coming months, many will notice one requirement is missing, GRE scores. That's because UNC's administrative board decided to make GREs optional. Joining us today to discuss this decision is Sarah Jacobson, the Graduate School's Assistant Dean of Admissions and Enrolled Students. Dean Jacobson, welcome to Carolina Connection. Hi, Lauren. Over the past two years, the Chemistry Department, School of Social Work, and some other graduate programs across UNC have dropped the GRE requirements. Why did they make that decision? We were noticing an alignment with national trends. A lot of universities, a lot of individual academic programs have begun sort of reevaluating their admissions metrics to see, to, with a thinking about holistic admissions and reducing barriers to education. So we were seeing some trends. We were seeing more and more requests to waive the GRE from individual programs. So that prompted the graduate school to put forward this pilot to our board to sort of make it a central decision. So with this change, what types of candidates is this going to open the doors to? The goal was to really just increased diversity sort of broadly defined, right? International applicants, rural applicants, um, underprivileged populations, any sort of uh, populations that are underserved and underrepresented in graduate education that differs by discipline, that differs by program. So non-traditional students, older students, underrepresented students, international students, um, very broadly defined. Anyone who the cost or the ability to take a standardized test would present some sort of challenge or, or inequality, I would say. And so in dropping this requirement, what is the application process looking like for candidates now? So the GRE was, when it was required, was just one of many components that programs were using. At the graduate level, admissions is decentralized. So um, it's individual programs that are largely reviewing the applications and recommending a decision. So it does look different per program. Programs have different standards, different requirements. There are some components that are required of all applicants, personal statement, CV, resume, letters of recommendation. But then a lot of programs have a writing sample or an interview or additional requirements by program. But there are some standard things that are required for all. And so with the GRE, I'm sure that that is one way that you can kind of see how students will be successful in their programs. And so with that being optional now, how is it that you'll be able to, I guess, measure students' ability for success in the rest of the application materials? The GRE is only intended, even from its maker, to be one predictor of success in the first year of a graduate program. So it's only sort of even a very early indicator. It's what it's intended to be. But a lot of our programs were finding that it was not the best indicator of success in a program, that it was problematic. So um, we're looking at other things, sort of like work and life experience, right? Your undergraduate experience, your grades, but also did you do lab work or what kind of, uh, what kind of courses were you taking, strength of your schedule, your letters of recommendation. So it depends on the program, but there are, we're looking at a big picture and trying to really take time and review applicants holistically and so I know that you said some schools are still keeping the requirement for various reasons, but I was wondering, mm -hmm. do you know specifically which schools and what their different reasons are for that? Um, so one is sociology who um, they, I think, see the GRE as 
just one of several indicators and they wanted more time to evaluate for their program individually, how good of a metric it was. So they, they're considering it and they may waive the GRE later, but weren't quite ready. So they're gathering a lot of long-term and longitudinal data. Um, additionally, math has kept the GRE because they're quantitative and they found that the quantitative section of the GRE really does let them know about a student's preparation and readiness for the rigor of their doctoral program, for example. Sarah Jacobson is the Graduate School's Assistant Dean of Admissions and Enrolled Students. She spoke to us from her home. Earlier this week, several attorneys general in Republican-led states sued the Biden administration over its plan to forgive a portion of student loans owed to the federal government. But even for those who are still eligible, problems with the application process could keep qualified borrowers from having their debt forgiven. Nayeli Jaramillo-Plata has more. President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan could wipe the debt of about 20 million people. It could also reduce it for another 23 million. But the outcome will depend on the implementation process. The Department of Education will forgive $10,000 in debt for qualifying borrowers. Additionally, those who qualified for a Pell Grant will have their debt reduced by $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under $125,000 a year. Christine Mooney is a graduate teaching assistant in the Department of Sociology at UNC, and she graduated from the University of Rochester with $30,000 in loans. I was actually pretty surprised. Um, I know that there's been talk about debt forgiveness, but I think I kind of was cynical in terms of thinking about whether that would be realistically something that would be achieved like in the near term. However, Mooney says that she is still hazy on the application process, and she's not alone. Historically, the Department of Education has not made it particularly easy for people to qualify for these loan forgiveness plans. This is Mallory Sorrell. She's an assistant professor of public policy at Duke University. And she says there's potential for complications because there is an income cap to determine qualifiers, meaning people have to certify their income with the Department of Education before they can get the benefit. The Department of Education currently has the financial information of about 8 million borrowers, but that leaves borrowers who could benefit from this plan, but they're going to have to apply to get that benefit. Sort of somewhat notoriously, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Plan ended up effectively uh, eliminating almost no debt for a long time because it was so hard to qualify for. And they've tried to make that easier. They've tried to fix some of these, these problems, but it still isn't reaching everyone who it could. And there have been three big questions, which are, what will this do to inflation? What will this do to the deficit? And lastly, what will this do to the debt? Anyone who tries to give you a definitive answer to that is... Uh, the generous way of putting it would be they're maybe being overconfident. The uh, ungenerous way would be to, to say they're being a little disingenuous. Sorrell said, we just don't know how exactly the policy will impact the economy because it is influenced by many economic factors that are not related to debt cancellation. Derek Johnson is the president of the NAACP, and he calls President Joe Biden's plan a good first step. However, he said increasing the debt forgiveness to $50,000 could close the racial wealth gap and help the individuals who are hit the hardest by student loan debt. When we think about particularly um, borrowers who are hit hardest by student loan debt, and that includes black borrowers, um, 
the average black borrower has about $25,000 more in student loan debt than the average white borrower. However, regardless of the diverse and divided opinions, some students have felt a sense of relief since this historic announcement. Samuel Garzon is a senior at UNC, and he is expecting to have his student loan debt completely wiped. He will no longer battle with the decision of putting down a payment for a house or paying off his student loans. It's helping the people in any way. It's nice. Even if it doesn't help you, it's helping someone else to put food on their table or at least one less thing to worry about. In Chapel Hill, I'm Nayeli Jaramillo-Plata. Coming up on Carolina Connection, students grapple with mental health during midterm season, and we take you to a cookout. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC student-produced newscast. I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Will Christensen. It's no secret that exams in college can be overwhelming, and it's easy for that stress to harm mental health. But along with UNC's various resources to help, student organizations are working to show students that they care about them, especially during tough times like midterms. Emma Cook has more. Would you guys like some candy? Take an affirmation. Outside Lenore Dining Hall, members of UNC's Acts of Random Kindness Club give candy and slips of paper to passing students. They say things like, you are loved, I care about you, and I believe in you. Whatever you want. Tell your friends. Sophomore Cynthia Tran, who passed by the table, said she really appreciated the gesture and that kind words like these could change someone's day for the better. This past weekend has been really hard for me. I had another midterm on Friday the previous week and I actually struggled a lot with my mental health so it really kind of like brought my spirits up. And this is exactly what the club is trying to do. Offer encouragement to students during a time when stress is especially high. This usually involves handing out lots of free stuff, says the club's president, Sophia Zhang, who watched as the affirmation notes planted smiles on the faces of the students who received them. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Founded in 2017, the Acts of Random Kindness Club, also known as ARC, hosts various events like this during exams, when they think students need to be shown kindness the most. Zhang says she hopes they make a positive impact on the students by decreasing some of their stress. We're able to let people know that kindness does still exist, and that's what we try to do, which is to show people kindness, um, especially students. Zoe Silverman is a clinical social worker for UNC's Counseling and Psychological Services, CAPS, and she also says exams take a toll on students' mental health. They forget to sleep, eat, 
and talk to friends and family, which are all important in maintaining a healthy well-being. It's a stressful time, she says, and it's easy to feel hopeless and overwhelmed. We can become so tunnel vision that it's difficult to remember the ways that we can support ourselves. The first thing she says to do is breathe. It sounds so simple, but it's so true. Um, that helps your uh, nervous system to kind of regulate itself. She says she hopes students will take advantage of CAPS therapists and 24-7 crisis line, and also that CAPS can help delay exams for students who aren't in a good mental place to take them. Our coast events all semester long, not just during exams. Zhang's favorite being Halloween of last year. The club had 20 boxes of pizza, piles of Halloween candy, and words of affirmation to give to students. In return, students had to leave their own words of affirmation on a sticky note. Zhang says it was not only a way for the club to show kindness to students, but to encourage them to pass it forward. One of our main goals is to, you know, let students know that they're worth being kind to, and we try to implement that in every way possible. ARC will host the event again this October. In Chapel Hill, I'm Emma Cook. With more UNC students moving into Chapel Hill's Northside neighborhood, some residents are concerned about how the area is changing. So on Wednesday, people gathered at the Hargraves Community Center to address those concerns, build community, and grill some food. Lorelai Sykes has the story. Is there anyone that doesn't want cheese on your burger? This is the cookout organized by the Good Neighbor Initiative, and it drew crowds of residents in the Chapel Hill and Carborough area of all ages. The GNI is a collaboration of local groups such as UNC Chapel Hill, the Jackson Center, the Town of Carborough, the Town of Chapel Hill, and many more to support positive living experiences in neighborhoods where the increasing population of students is sharing space with non-students. Students have been living in these neighborhoods for many years, but that has really accelerated over the last couple of decades, right? the last 20 years or so. And so, you know, we have many students who might move into the neighborhood and not even realize that they live in a neighborhood, not just a place where students live. Aaron Bockenheimer, executive director of off-campus student life and community partnerships at UNC, believes that it's important to get young people involved in maintaining the established community. But some community members may not feel that sense of togetherness quite yet. In their 2023 year plan, the Campus and Community Coalition hoped to propose a social host ordinance to the town of Chapel Hill. The ordinance would crack down on loud, unruly parties and would hold tenants, property owners, and landlords accountable. However, students criticized the draft's hefty fines, and the coalition decided to collect more public opinion before presenting it to the town. So one of the reasons why we do this work is, for example, if students are having a party and they're more mindful of their neighbors and they know their neighbors and they think of themselves as being part of the community, then they're less likely to, for example, host a social event that's disruptive to the community. And some students agree, like Sophie Dubois, a student at UNC who also works at the Marion Jane Jackson Center, which is an affordable nonprofit housing committee. After working at the Jackson Center, she found her way to planning and organizing part of the cookout. I think that a lot of students feel like intimidated or sort of um, targeted by like people saying like, oh, you're moving into a residential neighborhood. You need to act a certain way. But I think that it's more about like having an awareness that despite the reputation that Chapel Hill is a college town, it is in fact not a college town. Um, and that's like 
saying that it's a college town is ignorant of the people who live here who don't go to college here, which is a lot of people, um, as you can see from the turnout tonight. Town Councilman Michael Parker says that there is friction between students and residents, and there must be an effort to bridge the gap between the two groups. Having the residents and the students live well together doesn't happen by accident. It has to be done intentionally. And so, you know, the Good Neighbor Initiative, which is more than just this cookout, really works toward that end. Now, not only do long-term residents preserve the community that they grew up in, students can pitch in too. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. With the NCAA no longer preventing them from profiting off of their name, image, or likeness, many UNC student-athletes are promoting stores or products. For more on the culture surrounding NIL deals, here's Carolina Connections' Noah Monroe. Since last year, when the name, image, and likeness rule was introduced, college athletes have benefited greatly with some signing NIL deals with car companies. For UNC athletes, though, they've signed NIL deals with local Chapel Hill shops, including Brandwine's Bagels in downtown Chapel Hill. When the rule was introduced, Alex Brandwine, the owner of Brandwine's Bagels, went to work on finding a way to support Tar Heel athletes. What he came up with was Team Brandwine, an NIL opportunity that gives free merch and a $25 gift card to the shop to players in exchange for them promoting Brandwine's on their social media. He signed over 200 UNC players to deals with at least one player from each of UNC's 28 varsity sports represented. When the opportunity did come up that we could do something for the players, I was so excited because I wanted to give something back to them because I truly believe they're a huge part of what makes this town really special. However, for many years, athletes were denied the opportunity to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. Former Duke basketball player and current broadcaster for ESPN, Jay Billis, recounted the time after the 1986 championship game when he and a teammate signed an endorsement deal the day after they were no longer players in college. Johnny Dawkins and I signed a deal the day, I think it was the day after the NCAA championship game, our senior year for a, a budding cellular company. And it, it, it's mind boggling to think that we had value the day after the championship game. We didn't have similar greater value uh, before that. So the only reason we couldn't do that were due to NCAA restrictions. NCAA restrictions still exist, but are now loosened due to NIL. The compliance office at UNC still has to monitor the NIL deals that student athletes sign to make sure they don't bring violations to the athletic program. Marielle Van Gelder, the Associate Director of Athletics for Compliance at UNC, is a part of the team that helps athletes find NIL deals, but also keeps them out of trouble. Our first year, we spent a lot of time talking about the rules, really trying to focus on, um, you know, providing education in all of the areas that, that maybe we really haven't focused on before. So things like taxes, like contract review, um, intellectual property, all kind of areas where NCAA rules used to not let student-athletes engage in these activities at all. With NIL deals, though, comes potential foul play from universities. The NCAA has tried to brainstorm ideas on a federal standard so that they can regulate NIL so the playing field is even and no behind-the-scenes payments from coaches are being made. The one area where the NCAA is making the most noise about a federal standard has to do with recruiting. What the NCAA is, is definitely afraid of is that they're going to have to pay the players themselves. As college sports continue to thrive, NIL has the potential to keep growing as the years go by, with athletes reaping the benefits of this and thus their surrounding college community. This is Noah Monroe reporting. Finally this week, it's almost two months into the semester, and many students, specifically those who are out of state, have not been able to return home. So Emma Cook asked students what they miss most about their hometown. 
My name is Kanishka Shah. I'm a neuroscience and math double major. I definitely miss my mom's cooking the most and I miss just being able to go downstairs and just like sit with her and talk to her. Madison Sturdivant, Human Development and Family Sciences. My mom. Sophie Guo, Business and Statistics. Probably the food. I miss the home cooked meals. Uh, my name is Joseph Kurtz, I'm an econ major. What I miss most at home, my dog. Michael Valio, Business, my family. Nushra Power, probably Bio. Privacy and my own bed that doesn't squeak. <laughs> uh, Sanvi Arora, and I'm majoring in Computer Science. My sister. Um, I'm Abe Orlandi and my major is public policy. I miss some of my friends from high school. Erica Bass, dramatic art and poli-sci major. I think having my parents buy food for me is nice, not having to pay for that. Yeah, Maria Mendes and psychology. The food. <laughs> my name is Luke Linkle and I'm a media and journalism major. I miss not having to pay for my water energy bill and being able to take long showers. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pakamian. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lauren Lovett. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.